for our Bible study this morning, would you take your Bibles and join me in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. If you did not get the notes, I would beg you to just raise your hand. The ushers will come around, they'll give it to you. I would strongly encourage you to have the notes because though it's two pages full, I'm going through it quickly and a lot of the material then you'll have in your hand. We're talking about family. We're talking about rearing, people, rearing children. There's an article that was written by this one gal who said, there are things that I promised I would never let my children do. Here's her comments. Before I had kids, I was also an expert on raising kids. Here are some of my expert declarations and a brief rundown of my actual findings. I used to say, my kids will never behave that way in public. By behave, I meant they never throw temper tantrums in the store. Those hysterical fits that sound like they're being chased down the cereal aisle by an actual shark. Now, when my children throw a tantrum in public, I react the way anyone in my situation should. I look around and ask random people, are those your kids? I'll whisper to the person next to me, I'm just their nanny. You should see what their parents have done. Occasionally, when my kids are thrashing on the floor, I even compliment them on the great form as they thrash and contort their bodies in ways that defy both human biology and physics. I used to say, I'll never go out of the house looking like that. Oh, but I do. It's not that I don't care about how I look. I mean, mostly I don't care anymore how I look. But a lot of times, I actually forget to do things like brush my hair, put on makeup, or even brush my teeth. I have, however, never forgotten my pants. Number three, my kids will never eat unhealthy food. My toddlers are picky. So getting them to eat anything that isn't a sticker or a crayon is a small victory. If they pass on green beans and carrots and choose to inhale chicken nuggets or pepperoni, it's an amen, arm-raising, hallelujah kind of moment for me. And I'll always toss in a gummy vitamin twice a day. That's how I live without guilt. I used to say, my house will never look like that. Actually, my house looks like a bear, build a bear workshop just exploded in it. There are stuffed animals and clothes and toy parts scattered everywhere. I've learned that cleaning up after kids while they're awake is like trying to clean up splattered food from an open blender while it's still running. It's exhausting. The only way my house will ever be clean again is if it spontaneous combust, spontaneously combusts into fire. I used to say, I will never be late anywhere. The slowest my children ever move is when we have to go anywhere that has a starting time. On any given day, my kids burn around the house like their pants are on fire. They move with the energy of 80 toddlers, breaking the sound barrier as they circle the dining room table for the billionth time. But the second I have to be anywhere, time goes backwards, and so do they. It turns into negative time. That's how long it takes them to get to me, minus 15 minutes. And then don't get me started on putting on coats and shoes. Let's just say that no one can put their arm through the coat holes when they're too busy trying to put their shoes on their ears. Number six, I'll never negotiate with my children. Negotiation is a powerful tool. It gives my children the chance to exercise decision-making abilities. Thus, I'm pushing them towards successful independence. Just kidding. It gives me my way for example, if little Susie wants ice cream, she has to eat three more chicken nuggets. If she doesn't eat them, everyone else at the table gets the ice cream. Raising a child, I found out, is like a business. It's all about incentives. Okay, maybe that sounds like a bribe to you, but it works for me. <laughs> Number seven, I will not allow my children to watch TV or that technology stuff. The fact is, in winter months, when your family is one snowflake away from mumbling themselves into full-fledged cabin fever, 
TV and iPods have become a sanctuary, a magical box that emits irresistible sounds and colors that buys me 15 minutes of motionless activity. I'll love it. I'll use it. Number eight, I'll never get annoyed by my children. I'll tell you a secret. Sometimes I initiate a game of hide-and-seek. They hide, I don't seek. <laughs> or there are moments that I initiate the game of hide-and-seek and I don't tell anybody else that I'm playing. I'll just hide in places where a three-year-old would never think to look, like inside the dryer. Number nine, I won't let my kids to stop me from going out. Taking a trip to Target requires more items than settlers needed for the Western expansion. If our forefathers had mostly toddlers in tow, they'd have made it as far as Ohio. That's when one of the kids would have had a breakdown because they left their toy behind. After the meltdown was over, everyone would mutually agree Ohio is west enough. We do travel now that we have kids, but I'm not discussing that openly. I'm still trying to sort all that through in my therapy sessions. Number 10, my kids will listen to me. I honestly believe that early childhood development doesn't include the ability to listen. Hear yes, listen no. For whatever reason, no one hears me until I'm in full-blown auctioneer mode, rattling off at 115 decibels. By the time anyone in my house responds, I've sold a sheep and four tractors at a farm auction six counties away. There's nothing more humbling than becoming a parent. There's no experience in life that challenges your character, patience, and endurance like raising children. Well... Maybe surviving the Alaskan wilderness in the winter after being chased by a pack of ravenous wolves is more challenging, but it sure is close. That person has a kind of dismal view on raising kids, right? Or is it more realistic? <laughs> I think we've all been there. The bottom line is this. Raising kids is really hard, but it's not impossible. The problem that most of us struggle is that we make the dumb mistakes. We do things that we shouldn't have done. We approach it sometimes with the wrong attitude, the wrong actions, the wrong, the wrong decision-making. And so what we want to do is we want to go back to God's Word and find out the things we shouldn't do. I'm going to start at a very, a very unusual text this morning, and it's getting me to where I want to go. I'm asking you to go to 1 Corinthians 6. There's a church there that Paul is writing to under the inspiration of God, and it's a church that thinks that they got it all together when it comes to church things, but there are a lot of mistaken notions within this church that he has to correct. Just like a lot of parents think they have it all figured out, but there's a lot of mistakes that are being made that God needs to challenge. Well, the church that he is writing to, the church of Corinth, has problems in such areas as this. They have a problem with communion. They're not doing simple communion right. They have a problem with their doctrine of the resurrection. They don't believe it. They're not... Uh, teaching it the right way. They have a problem with the spiritual gifts. He spends several chapters talking about those gifts of healings and tongues and how it's being abused and how it's supposed to be done. They have a problem in this ministry, in this church, with money conflicts. They are going to court. They are suing. They have all kinds of issues with dealing with how to find reconciliation in another way. They have problems with Christian liberty. There are some in the church that are saying anything goes. There are others that are saying nobody can do these things that bother me. And so he has to write. He has to help them to work through those issues. They have a problem where some of the believers are judging other believers and they're not having fellowship with them and you're, this, is, this is a click here of my favorite preachers and there's all kinds of issues going on that way. There's problems with how they handle the offering. There is a problem that's talked about in chapter 7 that deals with marriage and divorce and he tries to correct a, not, a whole lot of those issues and tries to correct the mindset that some have that you know if it's not working we can easily bail out and we can get divorced and then get remarried, try 
try it again and if it doesn't work we can try it another time. And so he corrects that. In chapter 6, in the first part of chapter 7, he deals with a very delicate topic. He deals with the topic that I'm not supposed to talk about in public. That's sex. But in this church there's a whole, now that got somebody's attention, didn't it? There's a whole lot of problems that this church is facing because there's a whole society that they're living in that kind of has become very promiscuous, unlike our society today. The Greek society even introduced all kinds of prostitution. That was pretty much, that was a calling card. They, they, the middle class and upper class, it was very common for men to have mistresses. One, two of them, and then they have a family at home. Even in their temple worship, it was very common that what they would do is in the temple worship they would even have peoples there, both male and female, who could physically, sexually serve those who came to worship as an act of worship. And so the society became so inundated with sex and with sexual activity that it started permeating the church. Aren't you glad we live in a society that doesn't emphasize things like this? Here's some of the attitude that they had. That some of the people were thinking as we read through Corinthians, some way of respond and said, hey listen, you have no business talking about this. This is a very private matter. This is very personal. What we do in, in private, that's our business, nobody else's. There's some who he's going to be addressing that who would say, I can do whatever I want. It's my body. It's so you, nobody can tell me how to control what to do with my body. There was others who were promoting this idea and were teaching in churches that God may us to have fun and God wants us to enjoy ourselves and whatever he puts on earth that's for our pleasure and our amusement. So sex we were created with creatures that could do that therefore anything goes and God is happy if we're happy as long as we're satisfied and pleasing ourselves. It's okay as long as we both agree and you know we, we love each other whether we're married or not it's by mutual consent and so therefore it is permissible and we can do this stuff and as long as we're saved what's the big deal? We're going to go to heaven even if, we, even if we're involved with premarital sex even if we're involved with having an affair even if I'm visiting the temple some man might say and so they have all these ideas again aren't you glad this isn't talked about in our society? yeah right Paul writes, and when you look at what he says in chapter 6, verses 15, and down through verse the beginning of chapter 7, he's shocked. He is absolutely shocked as he addresses this. Don't you people know this? The idea is you've been told this. How can you think this way? What? I don't get it. What's going on with you people? You claim to be saved. And he corrects their thinking. What he does is he gives several different arguments about this that lead up to a very, 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 very important argument that I want to get to. But let me just take you through the context. He gives some arguments why there should be purity in the sexual relationship. And he's going to make it very, very clear. He's going to make these statements. Like in chapter 7, verse 1, he makes it very clear where he's talking about the sexual relationship and activity. Now concerning the things whereof you wrote unto me, it is not good for a man to sexually, in that tone, touch a woman. That is to caress a woman. Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife and let every woman have her own husband. And then he goes on and says that you render due benevolence, you meet each other's needs physically. The point is, sexual relationships are for marriage, for marriage partners. They're not for anybody who's just casual friends. It's not for anybody who says, well, we're in love and we're planning maybe someday to get married. Or, you know, we're married but to other people. That's not right. He says very clearly that any sexual relationship outside of a husband and wife was called by God fornication. 
The word is, is also translated sometimes as adultery or as immorality. It is sin. So the word of God is very clear when he, when he talks about outside of marriage relationships that we're supposed to flee it. Look at verse 18. The idea, he says, you flee from this. And the word is continuous idea that this is something you've got to get away from. The temptation is too strong. You've got to per, uh, consistently put up parameters and safeguards to stay away from it. We are never... We are never to let ourselves get involved with anything that could end up controlling us. In the discussion of the sexual activities, he makes this comment down in chapter 6, verse 12. Look at he says, all things are lawful, but not all things are necessary. All things are lawful for me, but I'm not going to be brought under the power of any of these things. In the context, okay, he could be talking about a wide variety of things. He could be talking about anything that could become addictive to us, that we could take that passage and by principle apply it to such things as tobacco, drugs, could apply to shopping, eating. But in this context, it's talking about sexual activities. The application is any type of activity that is outside of the husband or wife relationship that would become controlling it's what you're supposed to stay away from. That would include any type of self-gratification. That would include pornography. That would include you know, the, uh, the, the conversations that would even be at work that would all of a sudden become addictive that you have to tell the dirty stories. He makes another principle. He says our bodies were never designed for sex alone, personal physical gratification. He says, that's not why God designed us. Look at verse 13. He said, meats for the belly and belly for meats, but God shall destroy both of them. Are we made just so that we can eat? No, no, not at all. The body is, by the way, the verse 13, that meats for the belly, belly for meats, that is a Greek philosophy. That is one of those sayings that was in common in their culture. And he is saying, but God shall destroy both those and them. Now the body is not for inordinate sexual activities, but it's supposed to be for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Then he goes on and talks about how the body is going to be kept into, into eternity for the service of God and that the design isn't for personal gratification. God designed our bodies the way they are to bring glory to him first and foremost. He goes on and boy does he get really pointed. It gets a little difficult when he starts saying, hey listen, for those of you who want to get involved with sexual activity that isn't so appropriate, I want you to realize this. You have a unique bondage with Jesus Christ. Look what he says down in the next verse. Knowing not that your bodies, with your body you are a member of Jesus. Shall I then take the member of Jesus and make them a member of a harlot? God forbid. He says, you, know, you wherever you do, whatever you do, this is, you do, Jesus is doing. You're engaging and involving Jesus in that activity. So if you're involved with inordinate sexual activity, if you're involved with porn, if you're involved with anything of that sort, he says, you're, you're putting Christ right next to you. He says, that's like having sexual relationships right in a church auditorium. We'd all say, oh, you're kidding. Nobody, well, nobody would do that. But people who are born again would do that with Christ if that's their activity at home. If that's their activity when they're having an affair. If that's their activity when they're involved with some, it's the same thing, he says. He goes on, he makes another statement, and these arguments are getting stronger. He says, intimate sexual relationships between a man and woman create some type of unique bond. I f- I'm going to tell you honestly, some, others of you probably have this better understood than me. I don't fully understand his comments. But here's what he says, there's a unique bondage that would happen when there's that relationship, when there's that f- sexual relation between a man and woman, know ye not that he which is joined to a harlot is one now one body, for two shall become one. He that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit, and he says there's a unique 
connection that takes place. We don't understand that, those who are married. There's a unique connection, and he says, you don't want to bind Christ with this temple harlot. You want, don't want to bind Christ with somebody who is pagan. You don't want to combine Christ and take him and involve him in that. Then he goes on and makes another statement. He says, any type of sexual activity, and this makes it unique, any type of sexual activity is from the inside. Most of the temptations we face are from the outside. He says this one is from the inside. This is the strong desires that all of us have innately and they grow. And he says, and if we handle them in an improper fashion, he says we are sinning against not only God, but our own bodies. Look how he says in verse 18. He says, makes a comment, flee the fornication. Every sin that a man do, does most is without. But he that commits fornication is sinning against his own body. That all of a sudden, somehow, you're damaging your own body. Obviously, you damage your future relationships or your present marital relationship. Obviously, you're bringing into your mind things that you don't and, and are going to bother you in the years ahead. Obviously, you're creating a whole set of problems that are very unique, that are very damaging. That's, that's what he says in all those passages. Then he moves into a really strong stronger argument. It's like he's walking up the steps. Well, here's a reason why. Here's a reason why. He's dealing with a culture that is sex crazy. And he's saying, here's why you as Christians have to be different. This, 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 this. And now he's come to the really strong main argument. And he's going to tell them in verses uh, verses 19 and 20, this is pivotal to all areas of your life, understanding this. And his argument, if I can summarize it in two statements, it's going to be this. The reason that you don't get involved with with inappropriate sexual activity is you owe him. You owe him. What I mean by that is you owe Christ if you're born again. He says it this way. He says, what? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which you have of God, and you are not your own? For you are bought with a price. Therefore glorify glorify God in your body and in your spirit which are God's. You owe him. Because God has graciously made your body his temple. You owe him. He gave his spirit. He, he, didn't have to, he didn't have to owe this to you. But when you came to know Christ as your Savior, when you got born again, God moved into your home, his, your body, as his new home. And this is really, really special. This is a gift from God. Um, we were talking last week when the Newtons were here. We were talking about one of the, uh, one of the things that happened in Portugal, in the Azores, is they were the only area in Portugal that continued this celebration of the Holy Spirit. What the people would do in the islands is they had a tabernacle. And we have mentioned this before. They had a tabernacle, a house that was like a 10 by 10 house built in the village. And it would be one of the most ornate houses in the village. And the Holy Spirit was said to live in the village in that house. Inside the house, there would be um, a container, usually about this size. And it was usually a shape of a crown. And then once a year, they would take that crown out. And that crown, usually little girls or boys dressed in white, would carry this by the direction of the priest to a certain house within the village. When they got there, they would have set up a household altar and they'd put the crown. The idea is the Holy Spirit has moved from this house in the village. Now he has moved into these people's homes. And he would live in their home for a matter of days or a week. In response to being so grateful, it was traditional for that family to provide food for everybody in the village. 
to extend themselves and provide one major meal. And this family, during that time, he said they were really, really, really very convinced the Holy Spirit is in our house. We need to act different. We need to live different. We need to do business different. We need to treat others. And they would go way out of their way. Then it would move in a procession. On another Sunday, it would move to somebody else's house. And you were really, really part of the hoi polloi of the village if during the summer the Holy Spirit was chosen to live in your house. Now that's in that culture, that is in that system, but you know what the beauty is? You have the Holy Spirit in you already. The Holy Spirit has come and moved into your body and He doesn't just come selectively to you or you or you or you. He has come in to move into every single believer's body. You have the Holy Spirit if you're born again. He lives with you in you and this is a real gracious, phenomenal act of God that He would choose to live within your body. So He reminds them believers. He says, he owe, you owe him. He has chosen to come and live with you during that time. And as a result, he is with you and he is, he is uh, in your body and he's there and he is with you wherever you go, anywhere you be. Whatever, whatever you do, the Spirit's with you. You owe him. He's there. He's around. You owe him that he is, he is there because of the grace of God. God didn't have to give you the Holy Spirit. God didn't, wasn't forced to do that. His indwelling, his accompanying us, it is by the mercy of God, the grace of God. Then, he says, not only do you and I owe him, but can I take it a little bit further? He owns you. You owe him, he owns you. He makes the statement here, as we read, you are not your own. In fact, he repeats it. He says, your body and your spirit, they're not yours, people. They're not yours to do with what you want. If you are born again, God, God is living within you. He owns you. You are his dwelling place. He bought you, he says, with the price. The word redeemed is the idea that you were on an auction block and you were being sold. The question you and I have to ask is, okay, who, who were we being bought from? The theology isn't we were being bought from Satan. That's not true. The theology is that we were being bought from sin. That sin owned us. Sin controlled us. That we were under its domination, under its penalty. That sin was, in, was the, the entity that controlled us and would drag us into hell with it because of the penalty. We had to be freed from it. Jesus Christ gave his life, sacrificed his life. No greater love hath a man than this, and he laid down his life. Well, Christ laid down his life physically, spiritually, so that you could be forgiven of your sins. And so Jesus Christ redeemed you by paying the ultimate price for your freedom from sin. He gave his life. And as a result, he now owns you. He bought you. The bottom line that Paul is going through is saying, hey, now listen, believers, when it comes to this area of privacy, personal choices, things that you don't want anybody else to tell you what to do and you do things in your private, he says, that's not true. You owe God holiness. He owns you. So even in the privacy of your home, even in the privacy of your life, then you have to be act and behave in accordance with what pleases God. God owns you. He's, he's coming down and saying, you need to glorify God in your bodies. You need to not just focus on, okay, what feels good? What, what do I want to do? But whatever you do, therefore you glorify God in your bodies because you owe him, he owns you. He repeats this in chapter 10 where he says, whether therefore you eat or drink or whatever you do, remember, you're supposed to be glorifying God. 
You're supposed to glorify God by how you take care of your body, how much you eat, how little you eat. What about the exercise? What about the medicine? What about, what about you know, what, you, what you're doing in activities and how you're trying to do you know, stuff? He says, you need to remember, you need to glorify God. The way you dress, the way you look, the way that you respond, you know, how you, how you um, think and what you put into your mind and what you fill your mind up with when it comes to entertainment. Glorify God. Glorify God. His whole point is this. God owns you. God owns me. Remembering God's ownership, Paul is saying, is going to make a big difference in your private life. Because when you walk out of this church building, God still owns you. You owe God. And so how you act in the private area of sexual activity, God still owns you. He is saying then in all areas of your life, you walk out of here, you still take the Holy Spirit with you. You still belong to God. And so therefore, whatever you do, the way you work, the way you play, what you watch, He owns you. What a difference. What a difference. Oh, by the way, how does that apply to parenting? Because all the way back in the Old Testament, go with me to Psalm 127. Psalm 127. That ownership of God, that isn't a New Testament idea only. It was also an Old Testament concept. In in Psalm chapter 127, there is the wisest man upon the earth writing. Solomon is writing to all the different people who would listen to him. And he is going to write to them, especially to parents. Parents who say this, what I do in private and how I raise my kids, that's my business. And Solomon's going to challenge that. Solomon's going to say to them, that's not true. That's not true. Because he's going to say, hey, listen, your children are owned by the Lord. Your children are a heritage, a nachalah. They are a possession or a property of God. You don't have the right as a parent to do whatever you think or whatever you want with the kids. They are God's kids, first and foremost. Oh, let me, let me give you the principle. Foundational principle uh, that we're talking about is this. Our kids are not ours alone. The four that God gave us were not belonging to Deb and I alone. They actually belonged to the Lord and they were only on loan to us. This principle, I, I, I'm, I told you when I started Sunday school this morning, I'm dealing with the topic of death and dying in Sunday school that I was very nervous about. This message, I'm really, really nervous about, that it comes across the right way. And I haven't been this nervous in months and years in preaching as today. This is the most critical principle that any parent can possibly get in their mind and their heart. It will be revolutionary to their parenting. It is the most critical area of understanding as a parent that your kids don't belong to you alone. They are really God's property put in your hands. It will make all the difference. There's a whole book that's written about this. I need to bring the book and show it to you. I forgot it on my desk. And it talks about this whole principle of God's ownership as opposed to what people think, parents think. And in the first chapter, to me, it was the best part of the entire book. That what he's doing is he's laying out this, this principle. And he wrote it about it this way. He said that when it comes to parenting, there are two different phase, um, um, groups of parents. There are those who come with it like, they're my kids. I own them. 
And there's another element of parents that say, wait a minute, they're on loan to me from God. I am merely God's ambassador. Let me see if I can define it a little bit better by what we mean, okay? And because if you think this through, this is, this is just critical as, as a parent. The ownership parent, parents think this. The kids are mine. I will do what's best for them. And, that, and most every parent, this is, you know, this is the, a good point. You know, I'll do what's, what, I, what I think. But the key is, I will do what I think is best. I am the chief authority in their life. I am the chief decision maker in their life. Whereas the ambassador parent, using that biblical term, my, my kids first and foremost belong to God. They belong to him. I am merely God's representative. I am God's ambassador to them. In other words, as an ambassador, I don't make the rules. I represent a higher authority. As the ambassador, I present his message. As an ambassador, I present it the way he wants it presented. I don't have the right as a parent to have any, any type of, of words, actions, responses, anger, temper, because I am reflecting God. I am representing God to my kids. And so as we develop it, you know, and go a little bit further, let, let's make some contrasts here, okay? The, uh, the ownership parent, they think they're in charge, they act like they're in charge, and they insist that they're in charge. The ambassador parent comes this way. The ownership parent, here's tendencies. They tend to put a greater focus on finding their own personal satisfaction, self-worth, and identity in their kids. Is what I do with these kids, that is who I am. Those kids, it's all about my investment. And by the way, the kids do, do des deserve and we need to invest. But the whole idea is what I am is all tied up into these kids. And so I find the identity in the kids. And I need to make sure the kids become a certain way so that I can be declared successful. No, not for the ambassador uh, parent. The ambassador parent says, wait a minute. My most important relationship is my walk with Jesus Christ. That's where I find self-worth. That's where I find my satisfaction. Oh, yes, do my kids impact me and how they respond? Yes. But I'm supposed to be focusing my walk with the Lord. Therefore, I am not like this in my emotions and in my life based on are my kids having a good day or a bad day. I am basing my, my walk on a more consistent plane on my fellowship with Jesus Christ. The, um, the ownership parent. They often, the goal is to make their kids their trophy. Oh, it's never said that way by Christian parents. But the idea is there is so much focus on what do others see and perceive about me via my kids. Um, I was raised in an ownership fa fashion. The discipline for the most part in my home was based upon did we embarrass our parents? The, uh, the focus was or irritate them, one of those two. And so it was more about what do other people think? So in public, sometimes the correction depended, was somebody there watching or was somebody there not watching? And there was an inconsistency. The, the issue of even table manners. No need to have table manners. No need to teach that kind of stuff unless we're only out in public. That's the ownership parent. The ownership parent is, okay, we will correct certain behaviors just because we're here. But otherwise, the kids can do those same behaviors. They can say those words. They can use those, that language away from here. But once we come into the building at church, okay, they got to talk a different way. That's an ownership parent who is inconsistent, where the ambassador parent says, wait a minute, I know my kids are going to blow it at times. 
I know that that's going to happen. My primary focus is not about what do other people think about me as a parent. It's what God thinks about me as a parent. Am I doing what the master wants me to do? And therefore, I have to do what I'm supposed to do whether anybody sees it or not. Whether I'm in a crowd or not, I'm representing God. And so my parenting has to be more consistent. My training has to be more consistent. The application has to be more consistent because God is always my audience at all the times. Ownership parent. They are often gauging the success as a parent. Well, I'm doing a good job because my kids are very good at school. I'm doing a good job because my kids are very social. I'm doing a good job because they're very good at their sports and they got, they got you know, all kinds of, of um, scholarship opportunities. You know, I'm, good, I'm a good parent because my kids are showing musical skills. By every one of those factors, my parents blew it. Because okay? I'm none of those growing up. They, told, they called my parents and said he should be locked away. He's a juvenile delinquent. My grades were horrible. My musical skill, I could pay, play a radio at times. Social likability, I didn't like anybody. But ownership parents, frequently, they gauge this. What do my kids do? What do they make me look like? Ambassador parents, the whole, it's wholly different. It's not gauging if I'm successful based upon my kids. It's gauging if I'm a successful parent by am I doing what God wants. It's not about my kids. It's about me. My success is am I faithful to God? Am I doing what God wants? I can't change my kids anyway. God has to do that. God has to be the one that they're supposed to be pleasing. Am I faithful in what God has called me to do? Not, oh, hey, wait a minute. My kids are doing good in school, so I'm doing well, and this idea of Bible training and devotions and stuff like that, that doesn't have to be stressed so much. You know, the idea of going to church consistently, I don't need to stress that because my kids get good grades, and they're in sports, and they're, they're doing well academically. Okay, but what does God say you're supposed to do as a parent? Not forsaking the assembly of yourselves as the manner of some is but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. It's not about, okay, well, what do other people think? Who cares what other people think? What does God say? The, the ownership parent does this. They, turn their goal, they try to turn their kids into something that they value, that they can see important. And by the way, there's, there's some truth that we all need to do that to some degree. But they tend to make their kids in their own image. Whereas the ambassador parent says, hey, it's not about turning them to be like me. It's about how Christ-like are they? How, how close? I can't change them anyway. So what I need to do as a parent is to really pray, 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 pray. And pray some more. And really get into the Word and know what am I supposed to do? God, what, what directions do you give me so I can try to train them up in the ways of the Lord? The ownership parent operates this way. They determined the standard of parenting by what they experienced. If it worked and I turned out pretty good, then it must be okay. Or, hey, wait a minute, here's what I found that works. If I raise my voice to 115 decibels so I can auction in a county away, then it must be good. If I stand there and go, you better listen, one, two, three, four, three and a half, don't let me get to four, and it works. My kids always listen to me when I get to start counting. You're going to argue that that's a biblical method of parenting? 
You're going to argue that training a child not to listen and obey until you hit a certain number is really honoring the Lord? Really? Well, you, you don't understand. When I grew up, my dad was really tough with me and my mom. They spanked me more than what I think I should have been spanked. Therefore, I'm going to get rid of all that spanking business. And I'm not going to do it because, you know, I've talked about it with my friends and it's not really culturally acceptable. So the standard that you make as a parent based upon you're going to sit and claim that I, I'm an ambassador parent, I'm doing a really good job, but I am discarding what God says I'm supposed to do when it comes to training a child because it's not culturally acceptable. Really? You're going to say you're really representing God when you don't go by His precepts of parenting? Well, you don't understand. When my kid, when, if I discipline my child, my child, he gets angry with it. And he gets mad with it. And so there's more upheaval in the home. And so it doesn't work. You're really going to say, God's method doesn't work because you don't work it the right way. You're really going to go there. You see, God's method does work with a child, no matter who the child is, because you train them even after you discipline them, you train them by either correcting that behavior or allowing it to exist. You're training them that way. <laughs> the bottom line is who owns you? Who owns you? Who owns your home? The, the ambassador parent. They say God's word is the answer. As a result, the ambassador parent says, I must continually, constantly be going back to God's word. I cannot say, okay, it worked when they were a toddler, so it's going to work when they're a teen. Nope, i got to go back to God's Word, find out principles from God's Word that I apply now. Evaluate, am I, st am I doing the Word of God? Am I Here's why. Any one of us, any one of us falls into ownership parenting. Any one of us at any moment. We fall into the ownership parenting. We, we, we're sitting there, we're doing, a, I'm going I'm to have to go back in years because... Okay, this is where it was. So I'm sitting there, I'm reading the newspaper. You know, the, teens, those are things that used to come out, okay, like this, but now you see them all on the phone. Okay, but we used to have newspaper. And the kids are in the corner. Tony is really picking on Becky, okay? Naturally, you all say amen, he's the one. Okay, so he, they're, they're doing their squabble, and I'm going to be the ownership parent. I'm going to storm in there. I'm going, why can't you kids just quiet down for a while? Isn't that great? I'm yelling and telling them to be quiet. So I'm scolding them and I'm giving them timeouts for the rest of their life. You're staying in this room until you're 82, okay? And I'll tell you if you can ever come down for supper. And then I go back and I sit there and I'm holding the paper and in my mind I'm going, oh man, oh man, you know, I shouldn't have probably done that. And I'm not reevaluating it. I all of a sudden give excuse after excuse and don't challenge myself by the word of God. And the next time it happens, I do the same thing. Because it worked. It scared them into quietness for a minute. You know, here's what the bottom line is. The, the ownership parent, they put such great pressure on their kids. Because to be a successful parent, your kid has to perform. They have to conform. They've got to do this, 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 this. They've got to be in your image. 
They've got to have the likes you like. They have to re- get up to your scale of what you think they should be. Otherwise, the pressure is on. And the resentment in time when they're in their teen years and in their adult years is phenomenal. Some of you sitting here, you still resent your parents. You look back and you know that you had ownership parents. And you had pressure upon you. You never ever heard from your father or mother, I love you, I am proud of you, but boy, did they put the screws down. And you feel that distance even to this day. You love them, you don't like them. And there are some kids who have grown up in this church that have that same attitude about moms and dads because they were ownership parents. The ambassador parent says, wait a minute, this is about you becoming whatever God wants you to be. That you are supposed to be what God's given you. You don't have to be like me. Thank God. You can, you can serve the Lord in any capacity. There, I am not mapping out your life. You do not have to make you know, $200,000 a year. You don't have to make this much money. You don't have to have some type of PhD behind your name or you know, some type of whatever degree. You, they don't have that pressure. They have the ability to be anything God wants them to be as God leads them to be. And so, bottom line is, they're great as they are designed by God. Their sin has marred it. We'll deal with your sin. But outside of that, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. And though you don't like the things that I like, that's okay. And though you may not think the way I think, that's a scary thought. My kids don't, don't all, all of them, they did not come to the same conclusions the same way I come to conclusions. I look at things in a very, in a very you know, um, what look do I want? A, B, C, D, E. Yeah, the consequential thinking, okay? That's why I look. And, and I have to train consequential thinking. You've got to teach that. But at the same time, there was one of my kids, they would go from A to D, back to B, C, and I'm sitting there going, no, get with it. Come on. I, you know, I want this resolved in two minutes, this issue of your life. And I want to get you to F now. But they would be all over the place and telling the entire story of everything that happened. We'd start, you know, what happened at school? Well, I got into a conflict with this one person at school. We got into this little bit of an argument and, and they were wearing, that day, you know, they were wearing some really good looking shoes. They got them over at Walmart. They were really cool. I'd like a pair of those one of these days, Dad. And then I was talking to this guy and this guy and you know what? He's got a new haircut. I don't care. But that's the way God made them to in my mind, unthink. Okay. But the reality is, that's okay. That's okay. Ownership parents, they tend to justify any action they take. If they yell, they scream. They get out of control themselves. They over-discipline. They nag. They force the kids. It's justified because I'm the parent. I have a goal to accomplish. They've got to get these grades and they better get them now in this time frame and work and, and they better do it and anything I say or do, that's okay because I have a good goal. The ambassador parent is a far more controlled of themselves. They will be more cautious because they represent God. Representing God does not give me the right to mistreat other people. 
Representing God means that as I represent God to my kids, I need to speak in a certain way. Does God at times come across strong? Yes. Does God sometimes come across in a fearful way? Yes. Does God come across with consistent compassion? Yes. So the attitude has to realize that, wait a minute, I as the ambassador parent keep on thinking to myself, if I'm in this, in this spot, I have sinful tendencies. I am just like my kid, but I'm just a little bit more grown up in the sinful actions. I've got to curb the same things I'm telling them to curb. I've got to be more calm, more controlled by the Spirit of God. The ownership parents, they have a real tough time letting these kids grow up. They're their kids. No matter what, I'm still the parent. Letting them make decisions as a young adult, are you kidding? I don't know if they'll make the right decisions. They're not as smart as me. I don't know about these kids, you know. If they moving away, are you kidding me? They're my kids. I want them nearby. I, 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 you know, I need and I must have that interaction with the grandkids. They've got to be, they're my kids. This is where I find identity. This is what makes my life complete is my family's got to stay nearby. Don't let them move. Don't let them go far. You take my, my daughter away. You know, I'm getting it annulled. Okay. And then when those kids have kids, they're my grandkids. And I somehow get the authority and the right to interject and intrude anytime I please because I'm the grandparent. I can show up. I'm, I'm going to say it, okay? And offend somebody. Well, my kids had their kids here in town. They asked us not to come for a day to come and see the grandbaby. Some of you told me, who do they think they are? This is the quote in the foyer. Who do they think you, they are? You're the grandparent. That's exactly what I am. I am not that child's parent. They choose what they do with their kids. They invite me to see the baby when it's their choice. That kid is on loan to them from God. All of a sudden, these gray's hair, gray hairs doesn't give me the right to intrude in their marriage or their life. That's a new home before Jesus Christ. They have to answer to Jesus Christ. I need to stay out of it unless I'm invited in. Ambassador parent, greater peace as the kids get older. Know they belong to God. Train them to leave the father and mother, to become independent, to go wherever God wants. Bless you, wherever God wants. Their new family, it's under God's leadership. Oh, that's all the principles. Now the question is, which one are you? I'll guarantee every one of us in this room will say, I'm an ambassador parent. I'm the good one. And every one of us in this room has been here too often. The question is which one we're going to keep, keep working towards. And what challenges does it make? What, what changes would we make? It all goes back to this. This is, how, this is how this message all started. You're not your own. Your kids aren't your own. They belong to the Lord. They're merely on loan. And if I know this principle, and if I believe this principle, here's what it does in my parenting. I realize, and again, I'm saying it again and again and again, my kids are not my own to do with what, as I please. 
I need to treat them the way God tells me to treat them. I need to talk to them the way God says. I need to train. I need to discipline them. I need to guide them the way God says. My parenting needs to be directed by the Word of God, not by my choices, my whims, my desires. It's the Word of God. Two, my highest goal will be to train my kids to know the God to whom they belong. This is the highest goal. They need to get to know God. They need to get to know who he is, what he is, how he's like. Bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, parents. They need to train them. Even in the Old Testament, he said, Hey, Israel, the Lord's one Lord. These are the words that are going to be in your heart. They're going to be in your mouth. You're going to teach them to your kids when you're rising up, when you're sitting down, when you're walking by the way, when you're, when you're doing anything. You're teaching them about God. You're training them about God, sometimes not even by saying God, but by saying principles, by teaching, and just the simple things about the love, the respect, the consequential thinking, and all those principles. In fact, you personally do have to take time to teach them. You personally do model to them what God wants. You do take them to church. You get them exposed to the Word of God to learn as much as possible. You don't send them. You take them. You show them that even as an adult, you still need the Word of God. Some way I don't understand this. When kids graduate from high school, there's a tendency that parents graduate from church. Why is that? You don't need it? What lesson is that saying? Has that said? How has that been portrayed that God was only for this portion of my life and now I don't need Him anymore? For worship, for praise, for learning. I got it all down pat. You mean when your kids graduated, you became so smart with the Word of God you don't need it anymore? Amazing. Amazing. Here's something the truth. I train them to please God first and foremost. He is the criteria, doing His will. They need to know that when they disobey me, I don't do this, you hurt me bad, and put the guilt about me you disobeyed and you hurt the Lord. It's about you and the Lord. Yes, I was offended, but you offended the Lord. You displeased Jesus Christ. And your goal is not to make sure I am happy and that you, did, you are controlled by my emotions. You need to be controlled by God's emotions from little on. From little on, toddler on. Train them that what they do and how that relates to Jesus Christ. I'm allowed... Listen to me. I am allowed and required to handle them the way God says I'm supposed to. This means I must follow the biblical mandates when it comes to correcting the children. The way that God says, the reasons God says, when God says it comes to disciplining the children. When you say, well, there is no type of corporal punishment that I'm going to do in my home. That's not what God tells you to do as a parent. That's not what God tells you to do. There are multiple passages that talk about the need to physically, to use some form of physical discipline when appropriate and in an appropriate fashion. We'll talk about later. If I deal with them the way God says, it will be best for them, for me, and for my family. In fact, it says this. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he's not going to depart from it. The Bible says this, discipline your son and he will give you rest. He will give you the delights of your heart. It says this, do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him, he's not going to die. I know they sound like it. You know, your neighbors will think that's what's happening by the voice of your child. Okay? He, but you will do him good by helping him to have an, a healthy, 
proper response to God Almighty and to consequences that are painful. I cannot, as an ambassador parent, I cannot expect my kids to be more than I am. I cannot. I cannot do this. I cannot tell my kids that they need to put God first and then I've got the TV set as the, on the throne of my heart. I got the car in the garage. I cannot say, you need to be praying to God and then I don't do it. I cannot be saying to them, you need to go to church, you need to be involved in Calvary Clubs and TNT, but that's not for me. I don't need Wednesday night or Sundays then, but you do. I cannot say to them, that you better, be, better not lie and then I engage in questionable ethics on the phone. I cannot do that. I cannot list, say, you better listen to what the preacher's preaching and then you're fly, playing with the phone all through the service. I cannot do this. I cannot tell them they need to love and then I keep on talking at the dinner table about family hurts that I don't forgive my parents about. I cannot tell them that God wants them to obey the authorities and respect authorities like Deb and I as the parents and then I'm ripping down the boss at the table. I cannot tell them they need to serve God and then when they come home and they say, I'm thinking about the mission field, oh, that's not good for you because you won't make much money. Cannot do that. Cannot do this kind of stuff where you tell your kids, be holy, be pure. I don't want to hear anything bad out of your mouth, but at work you're telling the dirty jokes. You're cussing. You use the curse words around the house when you get mad. But it's okay because you're mad. Can't do that. Can't tell them you better be, think on pure things and holy things, but then you sit down and you watch movies that have strong innuendos or very graphic pictures. Cannot, cannot speak to say you better be respectful in your speech of others and then you're tearing them down and you're calling them out and you're calling them names. Can't do it. You can't expect them to be more than you are. You know, it all goes back to what we were saying. Foundational principle is this, is that your kids are not yours, they belong to God. They actually belong to God. But that goes a little bit bigger, okay? That means then that as a parent, you have to parent them the way God says, you've got to parent them to Him. To Him, and you must point them to His ways. But it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen unless you first come to the point that you say, wait a minute, I have got to glorify God in even the privacy of my home, how I parent. Oh, you might be saying right now, nobody has the right to tell me how to parent. That's what they said about their bodies in 1 Corinthians 6. Well, it was approved by society and everybody else is doing it this way. That's what they said in 1 Corinthians 6 about their bodies, about that private thing. Well, as long as the two of us agree, it's okay. That's what they said in 1 Corinthians 6. And he goes, What? Don't you know? You're supposed to be glorifying God in your bodies and in your spirits. All because of this, you owe him. You owe him for your kids. He owns you. He's in charge. You've got to follow what he says or you're in rebellion to Jesus Christ.